0: Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, the 4th of July brings barbecues, fireworks, and caution about the COVID Delta variant. We'll have some updated guidance on safety, also reflections on American freedom and patriotism from LGBTQ Pride Month to HR1. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt Noel. As we prepare for fireworks, barbecues and gatherings on the 4th, the COVID Delta variant is not to be ignored. It now makes up more than 20% of COVID cases in the United States and it's rapidly spreading in the United Kingdom where it now makes up more than 90% of COVID cases. For some guidance on safety measures, we've invited board certified geriatric pharmacist Dr. DeLon Canterbury, CEO of Geriatrics and also a member of the African-American COVID-19 task force in Durham. Dr. Canterbury, can you just share with us, first of all, welcome and tell us how dangerous is the Delta variant of COVID-19?
1: Yes, and thank you again for having me. So in terms of the actual danger, For those who are vaccinated, this is really business as usual. You want to continue keeping yourself protected, washing your hands and wearing your mask. But for those who may not be vaccinated, this could be a a variant of concern. What we fear is we are still not grossly vaccinated in America. Even though we are doing better than most other countries, there are pockets of people that still don't have access and are still not truly vaccinated, particularly those in the Midwest and those in southern states as well. North Carolina ranks 37 out of 50 states in terms of getting people vaccinated. And so we're gonna see pockets of a little bit of waves in those who are still in marginalized communities, those without access, and of course, minority communities that may be black, Latino, or Native American.
0: So the advice I would say is, you know, to go ahead and consider going to get that vaccination. How effective are the current vaccines against this variant?
1: The beauty is the vaccines are stellar at protection, especially when you have your second shot and two weeks after where you're considered fully vaccinated. For the Pfizer vaccine, we're seeing about 88 percent efficacy in preventing hospitalizations and death. And those are the two main things that we want to avoid at all costs.
0: And what can you share about the safety protocols for households with children under age 12 where perhaps all of the adults and people of age have gotten their vaccinations but you've still got children in the house
1: absolutely you know, with the fact that there's more community transmission with this Delta variant, it's likely that children may be affected. For those situations, you still wanna continue to make sure your children, if they can, wear a mask when they're indoors or outdoors, or particularly in crowded settings. That's gonna be our best way of protecting them now and going forward, trying to get families vaccinated as a whole, because it's not just a one-person effort, it's really a community issue in terms of how badly this thing could be spreading.
0: That's gonna be pretty tough for some folks who really don't want to wear the masks and don't want children wearing masks. And we know that with year-round schools, some kids are going back to school soon.
1: Absolutely, and it is tough. And I trust me, I think we're all pretty much tired of this, but the pandemic truly is not over. In fact, the entire globe, we've only vaccinated close to 10% of all people. And so although we're seeing a little bit of drops in, in deaths and hospitalizations here, for the betterment of our community and for our families, we want to get people vaccinated or at least consider talking objectively with someone about what maybe your concerns are about getting
0: vaccinated. Well, now there is a new commitment by the Biden administration for 3 billion plus dollars in research on an antiviral pill to treat COVID. How could a COVID pill work in terms of prevention and treatment?
1: Great question. And the beauty about this technology is that we already have it. We currently use this type of information for what we use for the current flu virus, for those who may have heard of Tamiflu. You can basically take a 10-pill, five-day course of pills, and it can prevent the severity of you getting the flu. And that same technology applies for COVID. One of the new agents is called monopiravir. And so it's now undergoing phase three trials. It will get more information in the fall. The beauty about this is, just like how you may take that Tamiflu, this may potentially worsen the severity of COVID if you are to get it, if you take it soon enough.
0: And you're talking about the severity of symptoms, and I know that that is a concern for a lot of folks. With regard to even taking the vaccine, um, and we've been talking about vaccine hesitation and the reasons for it. Now, for those um, who might be hesitant because of reaction to the drug, what's your advice as a pharmacist?
1: You know, honestly, there's so much we are still learning about COVID day in, day out, and the long-term effects are innumerable on how detrimental they can be, particularly for those who may have risk factors. The truth is, we know these vaccines are safe and we know they're super effective. And so, the risk of maybe having one or two days of side effects needs to be weighed with the unknown risks of this terrible virus.
0: All very important, Dr. DeLon Canterbury, thank you so much for your time and advice.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure.
0: June offered opportunities to reflect on America's promises with the establishment of Juneteenth as a national holiday and also recognition of LGBTQ Pride Month. Similar to black history in February, Pride Month began as a single day of celebration, honoring the 1969 Stonewall Uprising in New York. Here to talk with us about ongoing work to secure fair and equal treatment for LGBTQ people, I'd like to welcome the Director of Equality North Carolina, Kendra Johnson and journalist, Tim Pulliam. So pleased to have both of you here with us. Um, Let me open up with you, Tim. Just what would you share about uh, the most significant recent pieces of legislation that have been passed in North Carolina to protect and ensure the civil rights of LGBTQ people?
2: So Deborah, I would say um, HB 142, the sunset of that law um, last December, was a step in the right direction because it allowed for municipalities, cities and counties to enact their own non-discrimination ordinances. And so that was a a major step in the right direction. And to date, uh, Kendra, correct me if I'm wrong, we have at least nine municipalities that now have these non-discrimination ordinances that will allow people to be protected, even in private employment from the LGBTQ community. And at least four of them if I'm not mistaken, have gone into effect today. So in my opinion, those are our landmark and progressive policies that need to happen throughout North Carolina.
0: Absolutely, and Kendra, what would you share about um, that as a step forward and anything that has been counter to that as a
3: step backward? So first of all, Tim, you're absolutely right, that's correct, four came into effect today. Um, it's nine cities and counties, so that um has been really a remarkable advance. Um, the counter is really, um, you know, we had three really horrific bills that were filed at the same time that cities and counties were choosing um, to pass these measures. And the bills themselves do so much psychological harm to one of the most marginalized subsets of the LGBTQ community that we're still dealing with that harm. Um, and, you know, that's the trans and gender nonconforming community. And we've had four deaths of trans folks, murders, in North Carolina so far this year. Uh, and Charlotte is being ranked as the second most dangerous city for trans women. So we still have a long way to go, but we're going to keep pushing ahead.
0: And what would you say the most recent legislation on hate crimes has done um, for the LGBTQ community? Has it been beneficial? It, it does uh, it take into consideration um,
3: the needs of that community as well? Yeah. So some of the legislation on hate crimes that we've seen nationally, uh, et cetera, what it does for me, the value in it, because I uh, we know that folks who are sub- most likely subject to be prosecuted under hate crimes look like me and you. Um, and so we don't support the heightened Penalties that are put on, but the data collection um, that comes about as part of it. So when an incident occurs, we know that policy is data-driven, and having those statistics gathered helps us be able to um, target the appropriate policies in order to deal with these issues. So I think it's a step in the right direction. Heightened penalties are problematic because our carceral system Uh, is penalizing the blackest, brownest, poorest and queerest folks in the country.
0: I want to get both of your response on this because even as you mentioned that we know that COVID-19 really put that magnifying glass on the disparities, um, the racial disparities in many different uh, life indicators from health to education uh, to social justice. And I'm wondering, you know, how has that translated for the LGBTQ community of color um, in terms of disparities?
3: So, um, you know, I think in terms of disparities, we know that they're there. Um, we have multiple uh, intersecting identities that will determine how people enjoy, um, enjoy freedom and liberty in this country. Um, what's been really good about the pandemic is that we've seen LGBTQ organizations and partners start to actually look at racial implications. I think it's a result of the uprising as well. And so the HRC, uh, the human rights campaign, put out a report looking at uh, the impact on black and brown LGBTQ Americans, showing that they were disproportionately impacted by economically and in terms of health outcomes under COVID. And then we had a recent um, uh, brief that was issued by Cornell University um, and the public policy research portal that looks specifically at how race and sexual orientation and gender identity um, contribute to worse outcomes for people in the workplace and healthcare settings, um, in their interactions with the criminal justice system. So we're starting to see more data, um, and that to me is 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 positive because if you looked at previous representations of the LGBTQ community, you would think that everybody was white and male and cis and gay. Um, And, you know, we actually, black and brown folks, make up the majority of the LGBTQ community. And it's very broad. Tim.
2: Absolutely, and part of my job is to amplify those voices and find those voices so that you're not just stuck with that image of this white, cis, you know, gay male, that you're seeing the color. Um, in this community. And so one thing that I was proud of, right after the death of George Floyd, I was able to interview a local Black trans woman who was protesting you know, police brutality and was able to share her story about how she has been the target of police and how she's been disproportionately impacted uh, by the criminal justice system. And so it's about highlighting voices like that that don't always get you know, the shine. And so that is always my goal, especially moving forward after the death of George Floyd is to find those voices that we often don't hear from in this community
0: to definitely find those voices, but now we know also that uh, the president and the Biden administration have have taken a step um, to bring some recognition and and volume to uh, the LGBTQ community by identifying the um, nightclub in Orlando as a national memorial to honor those uh, 49 people who were killed in the mass shooting uh, back on June the 12th, 2016. What are your thoughts, Tim, about uh, the establishment of that location as a memorial and the fact that they even did that.
2: It is so important, and it's so monumental. And full disclosure, um, I I am personally friends with one of the survivors, one of the 53 survivors of the Pulse nightclub shooting. I had a chance to interview him last week, uh, so people can watch that on ABC 11. Fred Johnson, North Carolinian, here in Charlotte, but at the time was at that club and was shot twice in his arm. So, I I know the trauma that that has brought on him and his family. And so I appreciate President Biden for recognizing our community and recognizing that place that now is a sacred space, a national space that people can go to and mourn and show, and it shows that we exist and we matter, this community matters. And so that is what I love about what happened. And I'm looking forward to visiting that memorial myself. And, and honoring those people that were injured and killed. It's good to have that ago.
0: location, absolutely. And and Kendra, last question: um, Can you share? You know, I think it's no secret, really, the secrecy that kind of shrouds um, how the Black community deals with LGBTQ communities and issues. What do you think is at the heart of this lack of acceptance? And and what are the next steps to try to you know move past that non-acceptance to accept, to acceptance?
3: Yeah, so two things. First, I want to counter the narrative that the LGBTQ community is not accepting, because I think that's something that has been put out, I mean, that the Black uh, community is not accepting of LGBTQ folks. If you are, grew up in the South, if you have a religious tradition, you know you had the gay choir director, you know the folks who were in your facility. The African American community does not talk about sex, and thus does not talk about sexuality. And I think that's the hugest barrier. But we all have someone in our family who has a friend. It is just more of a cone of silence, but I don't think it's a lack of acceptance. Um, The laws that have been put in place that we fight against every day were not put in place by African-American folks. They were put in, in place um, by, you know, the, the folks who have traditionally been in power in this country. And so I, I want to reject that um, sort of statement because it's put out. Black folks were blamed by, uh, for the failure of Prop 8 in California, when in reality, these laws were being proposed by the people who were in power. And that is not reflective necessarily of the African-American community. And I can't say that there's not prejudice in the community. That would be untrue. But I do believe... Um, that we generally take care of our own. Um, and I think that there is some space for broader, it's the same issue we face with HIV, but churches started to move along and actually get involved in hosting fairs to combat AIDS. Um, we've seen progress in that area. We just need to be having more conversations about sex and, and sexuality in order to move forward.
0: And I think it's important, thank you, for making that comment about the narrative out there and and what's driving it and making that correction. Thank you so much, Kendra Johnson, also Tim Pulliam for being here. Delighted, thanks for having us. Thank you. The 4th of July is indeed a reflection point with the sentencing of Derek Chauvin, Juneteenth and LGBTQ Pride Month somewhat in our rearview mirror. It is time to celebrate America's Independence Day. So we have invited a historian and political science professor, Dr. Arwen Smallwood, Chair of the Department of History and Political Science at North Carolina A&T State University. Dr. Smallwood, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I wanted to talk to you about American patriotism because so often the patriotism of African Americans is challenged, happens most uh, visibly at sporting events Um, and most recently at the US Olympic track and field trials in Tokyo when hammer thrower Gwen Berry turned her back during the playing of the national anthem. What do you think about that form of activism or what do you think that that form of activism says about one's patriotism?
4: Well, I think that we have to remember that African Americans have expressed um, their political views, uh, athletes in particular, uh, really since uh, Jesse Owens um, and the Olympics uh, that were held in Berlin. Um, We'll see the same in the 60s during the black power movement. So when we talk about black athletes expressing their political views, it has happened before. And happened um, throughout history. Um, in terms of whether you know the actions you know are appropriate, I mean that's something that the athletes um, uh, have to decide. You know, and those who choose to express themselves, uh, you know, are trying to you know help uh, uh, usually a situation that most people have seen. And whether their actions are appropriate or not, I think each individual has to decide uh, on that themselves.
0: And I wanna talk about another kind of uh, patriot. Certainly you mentioned, we've mentioned um, athletes and their right to um, express you know, their patriotism and, and how they feel about the country. But I wanna talk about the American soldier and what, could, what can you share about black soldiers in particular and how central they have been to American independence since the time of the American Revolution?
4: Well, African-Americans have been serving in the military really since the Revolution, and one could argue even during colonial times, uh, but certainly since the American Revolution. Over 5,000 African-Americans fought for the Americans. Uh, 5,000 also fought for the British, but uh, again, they were fighting for their freedom. And so ultimately, African-Americans have never lost sight of, you know, what anyone would want, and that is uh, freedom and the opportunity to raise their families and be secure. Uh, And so we see them fighting really in all American wars. You know, we see them fighting in the Civil War. In fact, my great-great-grandfather, Corporal Joseph Cherry, fought uh, in the um, North Carolina First uh, Colored uh, all colored volunteers, which became the 35th Infantry. And many African-Americans in Eastern North Carolina, over 5,000 uh, fought in the Civil War in cavalry units, heavy artillery units, and infantry units. And uh, we also total over 209,000 African-Americans fought in the Civil War. Uh, certainly they fought in World War I. If we talk about North Carolina a t in our history, uh, Dr. Warmoth T. Gibbs uh, fought, uh, he was an officer in World War I. Uh, came back, of course, uh, to the states and eventually became the chancellor of North Carolina a and and was the chancellor of the university during the famed sit-ins uh, when the students uh, were protesting uh, segregation Uh, in the lunch counters at Woolworths. So we have a long tradition and we can go through World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and we see people like Colin Powell and others. We have a long distinguished history of serving the country, believing in patriotism and believing in the country uh, and believing that by serving the country and fighting for the country uh, that that guarantees or should guarantee our rights, uh, our right to dignity and our right to be respected as Americans.
0: Absolutely, and one of the fundamental elements of America is the fact that we are a democracy, one voice, one vote, and right now there's legislation pending, aptly named, For the People Act. What what do you think makes this piece of legislation so important right now in our democracy, especially in view of changes to the Voting Rights Act in 2013?
4: Starting with the Voting Rights Act, and if we go back to emancipation, we do have to understand that Um, The voting rights of African-Americans have often been challenged and been under siege. Um, After emancipation, if we talk about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, uh, giving African-Americans citizenship, giving them the right to vote, and then protecting that right to vote. Uh, and then if we go through the Jim Crow South and we talk about Jim Crow and segregation, we know that many Southern states uh, pass legislation to prevent or put in um, literacy tests or poll taxes to you know, discourage or prevent African Americans from voting. And again, you, you're countering that in contrast that with what you just asked about, which is our patriotism and our serving in the military and serving the country. So these are historical facts. We know that uh, the, the voting rights of African African Americans have been, uh, you know, challenged in the past and under siege. And so, uh, as that generation, you know, had to those those generations had to deal with that and rose to that challenge. uh, We have a new generation that has to address the challenges that uh, we are currently confronted with.
0: And so we have the For the People Act. We've got the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and there's there's other legislation out there. But all of these pieces to try to what enforce what what ought to be just kind of a given in in the Constitution and the amendments is what it, I
4: would say. Right, and and again, uh, it's just important to understand. And I, I you know I teach civil rights and I teach African American history along with American history, and then I just point out that you know the Constitution, our republic. Our democracy you know it has you know gone through evolutions and gone through changes but people have to be vigilant all people have to be vigilant to make certain that uh, we live up you know to the ideals of our country and so uh, and I think we're at one of those moments in time again. And we, even in our state, you know, we 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 have to work to de- together collectively and uh, and understand, you know, the challenges that we are facing, and try to do. I always say, do the right thing, but do those things that are going to be in the best interest of all North Carolinians, of all Americans.
0: And in my mind, it's sort of like working out your faith. You know, it does. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't come, but you've got to be working it out on a daily basis, uh, whether it's your faith or apparently, you know, democracy and all of the the ideals of being an American. And uh, in recent editions, we have talked about journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones' tenure issue at UNC, and now the Board of Trustees has voted to grant her tenure and she has accepted. People believe that at the heart of contention was her 1619 Project. And there's been a lot in the wind lately. The 1619 Project, Critical Race Theory, Uh, The January 6th attack, uh, continuing protests for social justice. Uh, We just talked about LGBTQ pride month and even Juneteenth. So we've celebrated Juneteenth and here we've got Independence Day coming. Um, What could you um, add or how would you say we can celebrate our various interpretations about what it means to love America?
4: That's a difficult question, but a very good question. And I think that what I have found in interacting with people, and my research kind of takes me all over the country, I've been through Appalachia and in various places, is that, you know, at the heart of it all, I think we all love America. And that's regardless of whether people are Democrats or Republicans, black or white or Native American or other, Um, that at at, at the heart of it, we have to understand what we all share in common, that is a desire to protect our families, to ensure that they have opportunities, that you know, they can grow. And I think as we, uh, as we come together as a people and understand that we really are seeking the same things, that a, a lot of these challenges, a lot of the things, no one's you know, trying to take anything from anyone. We're acknowledging you know, our, you know, the flaws, each, each of us have flaws, and we're acknowledging the flaws within ourselves and within our democracy, and we're trying to move forward. When I speak to groups of people um, around the country, if I ask them talking about slavery, for example, the first question I'll ask is, would you want your daughter taken from you and sold off as a slave? Would you want your wife or your sister taken and abused you know, sexually and sold off as a slave? Uh, and, and no matter what their ethnic background or racial background, no one, wants that no one you know It says oh that's okay with me
0: no but so, what we do all want is the right to be treated with respect and to make our own decisions and to be independent and have our freedoms and liberties and that's what being I think an American is all about yeah. you know, respecting and caring for other people uh Dr. Harvin Smallwood thank you so much for your insights and for being with us on Black Issues Forum thank you I want to thank all of today's guests for joining us. And we invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on PBSNC.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Have a safe and happy Fourth of July. And thanks for watching.
1: Quality Public Television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.